title of the sermon is, How Do You Sleep at Night? How do you sleep at night? And if you ask my wife, she'll tell you that I sleep like a rock. It doesn't matter if there's a storm out, the kids are crying, the dog's barking. I sleep. But if I'm honest, there are some times and some nights where my mind is going and I'm thinking about stuff. I've got issues going on. Some things that cause me to lose sleep, that cause me to toss and turn. And my guess is there's probably some things like that in your life. At least on occasion, you found yourself losing sleep over one thing or another. And so we're going to explore that in, in a little bit. But I want to give you a little bit of a context for where we are in David's life as we come to this psalm. Now, it's not a definite thing, but I want to point you to Psalm 3. If you look at Psalm 3, the heading of Psalm 3 in your Bible will most likely say, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And Psalm 3 is a mourning psalm. And right next to it is Psalm 4. And Psalm 4 is where we're going to be this morning. And Psalm 4 is an evening psalm. And Psalm 4 contains a lot of parallels with Psalm 3. And if you read some biblical scholars, they'll tell you um, one of two things. Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are companion psalms. They go together. Or you'll read some commentators and they'll say Psalm 3 has nothing to do with Psalm 4. Uh, so we're going to pick that they're related and they're correlated. And that gives us a little better idea of why and when David is writing. And so the context for Psalm 3, which we're going to say is the context for Psalm 4, is that David is in trouble. David is fleeing Absalom. Absalom, if you don't know, is David's son. David's king of Israel. He is in the uh, palace in Jerusalem. But his son has led a revolt, has turned the people's heart. They have declared him king. And Absalom is coming into the city. And before Absalom comes into the city of Jerusalem, David says, we got to get out of here. Anyone who's coming with me, I'm leaving because I don't want to get killed and I don't want to see what happens when Absalom comes, so we're going. Um, basically, the backstory to this, without getting too deep into it, is that David is living through the consequences of bad decisions. David is living through some of the consequences of sin in his life years earlier. The sin that David committed with Bathsheba, the lust, the adultery, and then the murder of her husband... That has ramification years later as Nathan the prophet told David, the sword will never leave your house. Your house will be a house of blood. And this is all part of that. And so the image we get of David as he flees Jerusalem is found in 2 Samuel 15. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read you one verse just to give you an image of what David looks like around the time he's writing Psalm 3 and, I believe, Psalm 4. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. So he went down from Jerusalem, he crossed the little river, and now he's going up the Mount of um, Olives towards the wilderness. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This is King David, God's man, crying out of the city, crying up the hill, lots of bad things going on. 
So my question would be, how do you think David's going to sleep tonight? How do you think David's sleeping during this week? Because if it was me, I would imagine if it was you, you wouldn't really be sleeping that much. If it was me, I'd be thinking about all the wrong decisions I made. I'd be thinking about who I left in the city. I'd be thinking about where I'm going to sleep tomorrow night and the night after that and the night after that. And I'd be wondering, what's going to happen? Is Absalom going to come after me? Am I going to have to run farther? And then I might be start thinking, we brought some food with us, but what happens when that runs out? Right? That would be my mind. That would be me. And, and I think that would be me tossing and turning and not sleeping. But look at Psalm 4. Go to the end. Look at verse 8. The beginning of verse 8 gives us this phrase. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. You catch that? In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. Wait, what? David, don't you know what's going on in your own life here? It's kind of hectic. Bad things are happening. You're on the run. You were a king. Now you're not. What we'll find out as we look through the psalm this morning is how does David have that peace? And maybe more importantly, can I have that? Can I get that peace? Can I experience the same peace that David did even when David was dealing with this kind of horrific thing in his life? And so as we look at Psalm 4 this morning, I think there's three big truths that will help us all sleep a little bit better tonight. So here's the first one. First big truth, God is bigger than my chaos. I think chaos is a pretty good word to describe David's current situation. Right? He's been dethroned. He's running. He's out of the city. He's a king without a job. And he doesn't have any prospects lined up. Right? That's David. His life is chaos. And then if he sits there and he thinks about it for any length of time, he'll realize that pretty much the reason why he's in this predicament is his own sin. It's his own fault. So you got David in a mess. And again, if I'm David, I'm understand I'm depressed, I'm angry, I'm mad. But David's not. Why? Why isn't David any of the emotions that I would think that a regular human maybe would feel? Well, I think because he knew there was something bigger than his circumstances. He knew there was something bigger than his present situation. He knew that there was something bigger than his past, and he knew that there was something bigger than even his sin. He knew that God was bigger than his chaos. And this is a truth that I need to hold on to, and you need to hold on to. Because God is bigger than your chaos. If you think about it, there's probably some things that come to mind instantly like, yeah, this is going on in my life, right? For some of you, it's that job that you just lost or that job that you're looking for. For some of you, it's that family member that got sick. That family member that might not be here much longer. For some of you, it's that teenager that just started driving or that teenager that just wrecked your car 
or just having a teenager, period. That's your chaos. Right? I know, I deal with them. Maybe your chaos is you're living through the consequences of some of your past actions, of some of your bad decisions, and you're still dealing with some of those consequences. Maybe you're dealing with bills that just keep, they keep stacking up and you don't know how they're going to get paid. Maybe your chaos is a bad habit that you can't seem to kick. Maybe your chaos is that problem at home or in your marriage you don't really talk about when you come to church, but it's something that keeps you up at night. Maybe it's sin in your life that nobody knows about, but you're scared somebody will. And so it keeps you up at night. And you toss. And you turn. I don't know what it is, but I think there's something. And if there's not, there will be chaos in your life. And that doesn't even touch the realm of national politics, international terrorism, things that are a little worrisome in of themselves. Here's what you need to hear. And here's what you need to hold on to. God is bigger than your chaos. But this is why it's important. I, just, I don't want you to go home with just a mantra. God is bigger than my chaos, therefore everything is okay. I don't think, don't stop there. Because David knew this truth, God is bigger than my chaos, but this truth drove him to exactly where he needed to be. And exactly where he needed to be was on his knees. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Skip verse 2 for the moment and look at verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Look, David has confidence. David has confidence in the Lord despite his past, despite his circumstances, and he expects God to answer his prayer. You see, this is what sets apart the godly from the world. How does the godly person deal with chaos? They go to God. They go straight to God. They go to Him in prayer. Why? Because we know He cares. Because we know He's been with us in the past. And we know that He's going to see us through in the future. We know He's bigger than all of those things. But I wonder how many times do we go, don't we go to God? We know maybe we should, but we don't. Maybe you think, you know what, this problem that I'm in, it's my fault. It's a big mess. And I, I just think it's kind of too big for God. Well, this is what Jesus says about that. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's no weight limit of too heavy for God. There is no problem. There is no chaos too big for God. God is bigger than your chaos. Sometimes I think that maybe maybe God, he, He's not listening or He's not going to answer my prayer. Jesus has an answer for that too. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Maybe you say, I know I've tried praying, but it it just doesn't work. It's useless. Paul has an answer for you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. You know, these verses, they don't tell us that God's going to take away our chaos. These verses about prayer and answers to prayer, they don't tell us that God's just going to take away all the problems in your life. But they do tell us that God says, ask. That God says, pray. That God says, I will answer. And that Jesus says, I will be with you through and in your chaos. Don't forget that it's often in the middle of chaos that God does the most work in you. Sometimes, say most times, the chaos we find ourselves in, the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in, God is using God is teaching. God is molding. Don't discount that. Go to Him. Understand that He's bigger and that He knows. There's a second big truth here that I think should encourage us here this morning. Not only is God bigger than my chaos, God is bigger than my critics. God is bigger than my critics. Listen, everyone has critics. The Christian definitely will always have critics. Whether it be a family member, a co-worker, just the world out there, following God isn't exactly going to make you popular. In fact, Jesus kept reminding His disciples and His followers as the crowds would swell, He's like, are you sure you want to follow Me? Because if you want to follow me, it's not going to be popular for long. If you want to follow Jesus in the real sense of the word follow, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be required to sacrifice. You're going to be hated. That's what comes with the territory of being a Christian. David was no exception. You go back to that verse number 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David knew that there were people out there mocking him. He knew that he used to be king and now he's not. He didn't need to turn on the TV or listen to the news. He could imagine what the people were saying out there. The mockers, the critics. Hey David, where's your God now? Is he still out there looking for you? Are you God's man? Yeah, how's that working out for you? Oh, you thought you were righteous and good. Yeah, how's that thing with Bathsheba working out for you, right? Yeah, you're, you're pretty, you're God's man. God's after, a man after God's own heart, right, David? I can imagine some people are thinking that. I can imagine David even himself is questioning maybe. But what David also knew was not only that 
Critics come with the territory. Critics were heading down the wrong path. Critics were just wrong. You see, these critics and these, this verse, they were after vain words and they were seeking after lies. They had bought the lie that Absalom was the guy to follow. But Absalom wasn't God's man. It wasn't just a rejection of David. It was a rejection of God himself. And where it was leading was destruction. Absalom never really got to be king. The short version of the story is he got killed within a week. The people that were following him were following vanity. Verse 6 speaks of other critics. There are many who say, who will show us some good? This is what the world says. Well, what have you done for me lately? What good can you give me? What can I taste? What can I feel? What can I experience? That's what I want. They were looking for a physical satisfaction. But they were coming up short because they didn't know the satisfaction that God brings. Many people ask of Christians, well, what do the Christians have that the world doesn't have? There's several ways you can answer that, but here in this psalm, primary theme is one word, joy. See, what the critics don't understand is that the godly, the Christians, we're living for something more. We're living for something bigger. We understand that popularity isn't the gauge of our success. We understand that money and clothes and houses and cars, those are all good things. But at the end of the day, those things aren't what brings up, bring us satisfaction. You see, the world is always looking for something that will, that will satisfy a desire, a felt need. But what the Christian has and already possesses is something that satisfies our souls. And that's Jesus. Here you see it in verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see, God's the source of our joy. If you're not a godly person, if you're a worldly person, if you don't understand the joy of the Lord, then all you have to look forward to is the best of this world, is the wine and the grain and the abundance. Go for it. Knock yourself out. That's not where the godly find satisfaction. And I can point to story after story after story of the millionaire, the billionaire. Say, I got everything, except I'm still missing something. I can point to the celebrity, the famous person that has all the popularity in the world, they're saying, yeah, but still missing something. I can point to the, the addicts, the ones who are seeking a temporary fix, whether it be substance abuse, drugs, alcohol, pills, whatever. I point you to those people and say, are you satisfied? Well, I was for a minute, for an hour. That's not the satisfaction that the Christians, that the godly are seeking after. If you look at verse 6, you see the contrast with what the godly seek. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. The world says, what good can you give me? 
What can you do to make me feel good? The godly say, show me your light. The satisfaction from the believer comes in the presence of God. It comes by sitting in His light and enjoying His fellowship. When we realize, if we'll we'll realize that God is bigger than our critics, then we can finally focus on what really matters. And what really matters is seeking after God. Because He's what satisfies. And He's what brings joy. And He's what lasts forever. Maybe you need to stop listening to the critics. Don't worry about those who are out there mocking you, mocking Christians, mocking Christianity. We're right. We're on the right side. We're on God's side. Don't worry about your popularity. Jesus sees. God knows. It's not a competition. Don't worry about those that seem to have it all together or seem to have everything. Because we know it's not in those things where we find our satisfaction. We don't have to worry about comparing ourselves to others. We don't have to listen when people question why we do what we do for God. See, because we have an eternal joy. We have salvation. And no one's taken that away. So God is bigger than our chaos. He's bigger than our critics. And lastly, God's bigger than me. God's bigger than you. And I know it seems obvious. Yeah, it's God. Duh, He's bigger. So what do I mean? Well, number one, if you go back to first, the first verse, we have to understand that God is bigger than me because this is why we pray. This is why we go to God. Because He is outside of me and He is my Creator, my Sustainer, my Savior. He says, answer me, O God of my righteousness. David understands that it's not his righteousness, it's God in him. He says, you have given me relief. He knows it's God who's working. David understands that I'm going to go outside of myself to God because he's the only one that I can rely on every time. But we skipped over verses 4 and 5. So look at verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. How is that possible? Be angry and do not sin. How can you be angry and not sin? Well, it has to be some sort of righteous anger. What would David have um, a reason to be have righteous anger? Well, I think he's angry at these critics. I think he's angry at these people that went with Absalom, and I don't think it's about just abandoning David. I think he's angry for God. He's saying, you guys are are denying and mocking God. You're not paying attention to what God has given you. You're not appreciating God and who he is. And so I think he wants to go out and do something about it. He's wondering, God, should I take these guys? Should I raise up this army? Should I go take that? What should I do? I'm ready, God. But I think he realizes probably maybe should think about that. Don't sin. And God says, vengeance is mine. Why? Because God's bigger than you. And God's bigger than me. And God will take care of the outside world. He's got it under control. It's a big word we call sovereignty. He's got it. We don't need to go play God. 
He's bigger than us, and we're going to let God be bigger than us. We're going to be angry, not going to sin. It says, ponder in your own hearts on your own beds and be silent. You see, David, if he's not going to focus on everybody else and everything else, he needs to focus on the one thing that he can control. That's himself. His own heart, his own actions, his own choices. And his recommendation, I think, to himself, to those men, and to us today, is pause. Is, is be still. Ponder in your own hearts, your own beds. Be silent. It's easy to point out other people's sin. It's easy to find fault in somebody else and what they're doing or what they're not doing. But our job is to be still before the Lord. To be humble. To recognize that I've got some stuff in my own life that maybe I need to address before I start going outside of myself. And I would ask you, when's the last time you took a moment an extended moment to be quiet before the Lord. Whether it's to confess sin, whether it's just to, to thank God for who He is and what He's done. We live in a culture that doesn't really stop. David's saying, stop. Stop. Be still. Be silent. And then he goes on and he says, offer right sacrifices. What's a right sacrifice? Does that imply that there's a wrong sacrifice? Yep. What's the difference between a right sacrifice to God and a wrong sacrifice to God? Well, a couple years earlier with that sin with Bathsheba, David figured a couple things out and he penned Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he writes this. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17 say, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What does this tell us? Well, this tells us this idea of sacrifice or right sacrifice is not one of what we sacrifice, but how we sacrifice. It's not about some fake or religious piety, but it's about my desire to offer sacrifice to God. If you look at the Hebrew word for sacrifice, it actually comes out of the a root word to draw near. And so the whole idea of sacrifice wasn't just to do something to make God happy. It was a means to draw near to God. And the same is still for you and me. We're not putting animals on a on an altar here. But our heart, we offer right sacrifices. We obey. We follow God. Why? Because we want to draw near to Him because He is our source of life and He's our source of joy. And when we do that, when we offer right sacrifices, when we have the right heart, that's what putting your trust in the Lord looks like. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. It's our response. To God. So where does that leave us? God's bigger than my chaos. He's bigger than my critics. He's bigger than me. Well, that leads us to the last verse. Where we started. 
These are the truths that we, we will cement in our mind. We can say with David, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Knowing that God's bigger than my chaos and bigger than my critics and even bigger than me allows me to sleep in peace. We have peace through Jesus. We have joy in an eternal satisfaction. We even have safety knowing that God is sovereign and in control of everything. So the question becomes, how do you sleep at night? Do you have that joy? Do you have that peace? Do you have that security with knowing Christ? Do you sleep knowing that God is bigger than all of this? So it's my prayer that your view of God would continue to increase so that you would continually experience even more and even more the joy that can only be found in knowing Him. My prayer is that you would sleep well.